always strikes me on a Sunday morning that maybe I should get a pair of these half glasses, you know, that so that you can just kind of half look at your notes and, and half see the congregation. I think these days are coming quite quickly. Um, good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grove now. Um, it's lovely to have John with us this morning with the family. You're very welcome, John. And if there are any other visitors, I hope that you enjoy this time with us. Our minister, Katrina, is on annual leave this week, so we are really delighted to welcome back Dr. Graham Meeklejohn of the Scottish Baptist College uh, and also Charlie, who's with them this morning. It's great to have both of them. Um, this church uh, supports Christian aid wholeheartedly and uh, Charlie, since last July, has been working full-time for Christian aid here in Scotland, so you could have a wee word with her about any up-to-date news at the end of the service. Today we're not using the screen, so everything we need to follow the service is on our printed order of service. And please do stay and have some tea, coffee and refreshments at the end. Uh, the March edition of the Church magazine is available today. If you didn't get one on the way in, please just ask for one before you leave. Then at 7pm, Helen Stimson will lead our evening worship and that service is in Kelvinside Hillhead Church. It's not often really been celebrated in our tradition, but this Wednesday coming is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of the period of Lent. And just to let you know that there will be a service for Ash Wednesday in St Mary's Cathedral on Great Western Road, if that is something you would value. They haven't yet publicised the time of that service, but it will be in the evening. And Holly has asked me to say that if you'd like to go, but you're a bit nervous about going to a strange church, uh, to a kind of service you haven't been to before, just give her a buzz or drop her an email and she'll meet up with you and you can go in together. So that's this Wednesday evening, a service for Ash Wednesday in St Mary's Cathedral on Great Western Road. Next Sunday at 11am, Katrina will be back with us leading morning worship and she will also be leading evening worship and that service will be at 7pm in Wellington Church. These are all our notices. Good morning. good morning. It's good to be here and good to join with you once again. As a call to worship this morning, I'd like to read from Psalm 24, which will call us into God's presence. And then following that, we will sing our first song. But let's hear the words of Psalm 24 first. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory.
As we come into God's presence, let's take a moment to pray. Let's pray together. Almighty and ever-living God, who set the stars in space and set creation in motion, we worship you. You inhabit glory unimaginable, and yet you desire to live in our hearts. We respond with love and praise. You alone are worthy to be worshipped, honoured, and adored. Almighty God, we thank you for all we see of your own beauty in the world you have created. And in people's lives you are recreating day by day. We thank you for the details of love which enrich our lives even when the going is difficult. And we thank you most particularly for your love to us in Jesus Christ who gives us purpose and hope today and for the future. Almighty God, Father of us all, you are always with us and we can only ask your forgiveness for the times we forget this in our daily lives. We bring all our burdens to you, Lord, our faults and hang-ups, our doubts and fears. Forgive us for the times when we feel our faith is weak, but you're a God of mercy and you can change us. Help us to see things with your eyes, to speak with your lips, to love with our Saviour's heart. We depend on your mercy and trust in your love to overcome all that is broken. Let's join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Starting together, I wonder when the last time you got angry was. And I'll maybe ask to see if anyone wants to share that with us. Hopefully we don't start any more fights. But while you're thinking about that, um, sometimes 
I get angry. I'm generally not a very angry person. You can ask my wife um, to verify that or not, but generally not to angry person. But sometimes, just sometimes, I get angry when someone doesn't use their indicators and cuts in in front of me. Just a little bit angry. And then other times I get angry when I'm playing football. Usually I'm not actually angry at the other team or even at the teammates. I'm more angry at myself when I make a mistake. And that's when I sometimes get angry. So does anyone have any uh, times that they remember that they got angry and are willing to share that with us? Deadly silence. No. <laughs> anyone? Anyone? Must be a very calm, peaceful group of people today. No one remember the last time they got angry. I can give you a general rule. Yep. Something that I hear on the news, uh, which has been said by President Trump, is what's going to Yep, that, that's fair enough. Or Boris Johnson. I can feel a, a, a sense of anger growing as we speak. Yes. Um, I get angry when I ask Bonnie to do something maybe four, five, six times and she just ignores me. Yeah, yeah. Do you get angry at me? Yeah. Yeah. Being asked, being asked to do things. Why do you ask me to do these things? <laughs> yes. Um, I worked as part of a large corporation that remained unnamed and they got a new budget this last week and I was not happy when I heard what budgetary decisions were being made. Yeah. So. Budget cuts, never easy. Well, getting angry is, is one thing. Another time that I, I sometimes get angry is when I hear bad things that are happening in the world around me. And I get frustrated that bad things are happening quite often to good people. Sometimes I, I get angry uh, when people are treated unfairly or when people are oppressed. You see, I think that anger is kind of this double-edged sword. Sometimes getting angry isn't actually the problem. We tend to think that being angry is a bad thing, but I'm not sure that it always is. I think what is more the problem is the way that we express our anger and sometimes the things that we get angry at and maybe even the things that we don't get angry at. And so later on, um, when I, I'm talking, I'm going to be developing this a little bit more about what it means to get angry, some things that we maybe shouldn't get angry at, some things that we might get angry at, and how, particularly within the context of a church, we resolve that. So that's kind of where I'm going to develop later on this theme of anger and how we might deal with that well. Let's pray together um, just before we sing uh, our children's hymn. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you that you are our God and we know that you love us. We thank you that because you love us, you also help us. Forgive us when we have been angry and we hurt others, but also make us bold to act with commitment where we see bad things happening. Help us, Lord God, to know the difference between when our anger blinds us and when it inspires us and motivates us to act. We pray, Lord God, that through your spirit you will give us wisdom and help us to learn more of you today whether in Sunday school, church, or simply in conversation with one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's sing our next song together.
The reading this morning is Matthew 21, that Jesus goes to the temple. Oh, sorry, verses 12 to 17, Jesus goes to the temple. And the glasses. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did, and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was in class teaching Christology, and I was drawing on some material by uh, a writer called Todd Miles, and his book was called Superheroes Can't Save You. And that was his premise, superheroes <laughs> can't save you. What he uh, ended up doing was using superheroes to explain early church Christological heresies. So for example, uh, what he uh, described was docetism. Now, docetism is the idea that Jesus, uh, when he came to earth, didn't become fully human. He was fully God, but when he uh, came to earth, he only disguised himself as a human. He didn't fully embrace the human nature. And so, Miles calls this the Superman heresy. It is, as such, Superman who was an alien. He comes from a different planet. He comes from Krypton. And when he came to earth to save us, he didn't become a human. He didn't change from being a Kryptonian to becoming a human. He stayed a Kryptonian, but he dressed up as a human. He became the human Clark Kent. And so Mayo says, this describes the Christological heresy of docetism. I think it works. It's quite fun. It's interesting. You'll be glad to know, though, that I'm not going to be talking about Christological heresies for the rest of the morning. What it did remind me of, though, was the Incredible Hulk which is one of the characters that Miles uses. The Incredible Hulk is a kind of anti-hero, I think. Um, Dr. Bruce Banner, when he gets uh, taken over by an almost uncontrollable rage, turns into the Incredible Hulk, who is an almost unstoppable being. And in these fits of rage, the Incredible Hulk sometimes does heroic things and then sometimes does very destructive things. And when the Hulk changes back into Dr. Bruce Banner, Banner doesn't remember what he's done, whether he's used this fit of anger for something constructive or something destructive. But he recognises that anger can be used for good and it can be used for bad. I think our world is quite an angry place at the moment. We shout at one another over Twitter. We vent our rage over social media. As we've already touched upon this morning, our politics <coughs> is getting ever more fragmented and ever more polemical. We are forced to take sides and divide our nations. I think although the world in some senses is getting more tolerant, 
almost as a backlash to that. There are growing pockets of intolerance where hatred is running ever more deeply. I think our world is getting a more angry place. But as I've alluded to already, I'm not sure that it's anger that's the problem. Anger quite often comes from a place of passion, comes from a place of deep commitment. And in and of themselves, those things aren't bad. Passion and commitment are usually quite positive things. And so maybe it's not that anger's the problem, but maybe it's that what we direct our anger towards, the things that make us angry, how we express our anger, the subject or the things that we are committed to are more the problems. When we read our passage this morning, Matthew 21 is an example, I think, of this anger, both for good and for bad. Sometimes this passage has been described as the scourging of the temple and it's been depicted as Jesus in in can be described as a fit of anger, flipping over the tables, driving out the money changers with whips. It is quite an angry scene in many ways. But it comes from a place of passion and commitment. Jesus was committed to the temple being a place of worship, not a place of business. He was passionate about the worship of God and that's what drove him to this action. His anger led to action. I think what's also interesting to observe about this passage in many ways is that this is not Jesus against the world. This is not Jesus being committed to one thing and facing opposition from outside of the religious institution. This is what I want to term an intra-faith confrontation that this was a confrontation with the religious authorities of the day who also held deep convictions and deep commitments to a certain belief system against the Son of God, Jesus, who, out of passion, drove him to these actions. And so there's this intra-faith confrontation. And in some ways, I think that's perhaps to be expected. I think our faith almost demands our passion and our deep commitments. And so perhaps it's not unexpected that in religious institutions that within the church, we have these confrontations as one side has deep commitments as deep as the passion of another side. And so maybe it's to be expected, maybe it's almost inevitable that there are these intra-faith confrontations. I think In our church today, we can see many examples of of intra-faith confrontations. Whether it's the status of gay marriage in the church, whether it's the politics of Franklin Graham and the evangelicalism of Donald Trump, or whether it's even still the status of women in the church. People on both sides have deep commitments and deep convictions And the church often finds itself in confrontation. And so what I want to think about a little bit today is two approaches to how we might deal with intra-faith confrontation. One is perhaps a a method, um, maybe setting some parameters of discussion. And the other one is looking at what might the outcome or purpose of such confrontation might be. I think it's quite often the case that in these intra-faith confrontations, one side will take a position, another side will take the opposite position or a different approach. And you'll usually find one side is in the majority, um, or perhaps wider society decides to align itself to one side or the other. And usually the minority side, or usually the side that's feeling under pressure, will pipe up and say, but you can't tell us what to think. This is our right to religion. This is our freedom of speech. And it's almost like this is a trump card, that when someone says, this is my freedom of speech, or this is my right to religion, then you can't contradict that. Because if you contradict that, that feels like you're becoming the oppressor, that you're suppressing their speech, that you are trying to tell them how to think. And so... 
when someone invokes rights or freedoms, it feels like it's the trump card. That's, that's it. You can't argue against it. But I think we maybe need to be a little more critical when it comes to intrafaith confrontations. I think we need to be aware that the rights and freedoms discourse is not innately Christian. That's not to say that sometimes Christianity would want to support rights and freedoms. But it's also to say that it's not necessarily the same to say that the rights and freedoms discourse is the same as a Christian ethic. I think we need to understand that the rights and freedoms discourse came primarily as a um, critique of a utilitarian ethic. A utilitarian ethic that said the right thing to do is what's best for the most number of people. And so it really supported the majority and often could end up to a minority becoming suppressed or oppressed. And so the rights and freedoms discourse arose out of that to say, well, no, actually, we need to protect the right of minorities. We need to be able to protect their freedoms and their rights. And that's a positive thing. But also, over time, particularly, it's become very individualistic what started as trying to protect the rights and freedoms of an oppressed minority has become very much, what's my right, what's your right, what's my freedoms and what's your freedoms? If I say that this is my right, then you can't argue against that. And that's slightly different to a Christian ethic. I'm not sure that Christianity can buy into this individualistic, what's good for me, might not be good for you, but that's okay if anything else. Christianity is not a religion that is our right to define what it is. And so I think we need to think a little bit harder about this rights and freedoms discourse. Stanley Hauervas and Will Willimon in their book Resident Aliens say it's very easy for the Christian community to find itself being moulded into or to adopting the ethics of wider society because it makes Christianity a little more palatable to the wider world. It means that we can maybe have our right to speak in the public square if we just conform a little bit to the ethics of the wider world. Instead, they say Christianity needs to um, not conform to those ethics, but rather be rooted in its own ethics, in the ethics of the church, what it is to be God's people. And I think that if we find ourselves being drawn to this argument that it's my right to religion or my freedom of speech, then we're maybe putting up something of a smokescreen to hide behind. That if we are saying something that is potentially damaging, potentially hurtful, and justifying it by saying that's my freedom of speech, then we're straying quite far from a Christian ethic of God's love for his creation. And so I think we need to be careful that if we invoke rights and freedoms, that we're not using it to hide behind, that we're not saying this is my freedom to say something that is hurtful or harmful. So I think we need to be careful when we come into intrafaith confrontation, when one side or the other side says, this is my right or this is my freedom of speech, I think it might be just a smokescreen to hide behind, to say something that might be offensive. So in some ways, if that's uh, the parameters that we, we, we can't get sucked into just a, a wider social ethic, then maybe what is the outcome or what might be the purpose of intra-faith confrontation? Sometimes I think what we do to try and resolve these tensions, to try and meet halfway perhaps, is say, well, we'll ignore what the person, uh, what they do in their private life, or we'll, we'll ignore their politics so long as the gospel is being preached. And we almost turn a blind eye as long as we can agree that it's important that the gospel is preached. Now, there's something that's quite almost appealing about this argument. Um, it's hard to stand up as a Christian and say, no, I don't want the gospel to be preached. That, that's a very difficult position to put yourself in. But again, I think we need to ask a slightly more difficult question and say, what kind of gospel is it that's being preached? Does the person who's speaking, 
does their life actually shape the gospel that they are trying to share? Miroslav Volf and Matthew Crossman, in their book For the Life of the World have a really interesting approach to what they understand as the purposes of theology. They say theology is not primarily about God, nor is it primarily about sin and forgiveness. Rather, they say it is about uh, creating a world that is suitable for God's dwelling. So essentially they say the gospel is not just about God and telling people about God, giving information about this is who God is. And neither is it about a dialogue of sin and forgiveness that's just about as long as I'm okay, as long as God has forgiven me, then that's all that matters. It's not just about an individual person's conversion. What they say is, no, there's, that's a narrow view of the gospel. The broader sense of the gospel is understanding that what God is doing in the world is to redeem his creation, to make it a place that is fit for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That that requires the flourishing of all of creation, all creatures and everything that we find in creation, that that is actually what God's purpose is. And this is a broader sense of the gospel. It's not just information about God. It's not just about an individual's conversion, but it's about the whole of creation being redeemed in order to make it a suitable place for God to find his dwelling amongst his creation. And so when I think we use the argument or we try and resolve it, say as long as the gospel is being preached, then we need to ask the question, but is the broad gospel being preached or is this just a very narrow sense of the gospel? Is Can we just ignore someone's life and their actions because they're giving information about God? Can we ignore their politics when their politics are perhaps harmful to some part of God's creation because they're telling people about sin and forgiveness? You see, I'm not possible. I'm not sure that it's possible to separate someone's actions or their politics in light of this broader sense of the gospel. And so I think when we think about the outcome, the purposes, what we hope to see um, resolved in intrafaith confrontations has to be measured not against this narrow sense of the gospel, but against a broader sense of the gospel. What, what are we really striving towards when we engage in these confrontations? Are we striving towards finding an answer, a resolution that is enabling the wider creation to be redeemed in order to make it suitable for God to come and dwell amongst all his creatures and his creation. I think that's the standard, that's the purpose of these dialogues. That's where they need to be headed to. So when we think about intrafaith confrontations, there's both the parameters that we can't hide behind a certain ethic that maybe isn't a Christian ethic. We need to hold firm to what God's love for the world says and we says to us and, and we've got to hold firm to this purpose of this broad sense of the gospel. I guess finally, in summing it all up, I want to acknowledge that when we come to this place of intrafaith confrontation, it can be hard to have rational conversation. As I said, often these angry dialogues come from a place of real passion and real deep commitment. And that passion and those deep commitments can go deeper than just an intellectual conversation that can be wrapped up with a person's identity, with a certain group's identity. And so confronting that confronts not only an intellectual conversation, but confronts the very core of who they are as a person. And so I think we do need to strive deeper. I think we do need to have this real robust intellectual conversation that people can't hide behind smoke screens, don't have a narrow view of the gospel, but also we need to rely on the grace, of pa grace and patience of God's spirit in order that we also engage in such confrontations in such a way that honours and respects God's love for us 
and love for his creation. The way that we engage in these confrontations can't contradict what we're hoping to achieve within them. So I think we both need this robust engagement alongside the grace and patience that only God's Spirit will give us. I know this is in some ways a difficult conversation to have, a difficult dialogue to have even within church, but I think it's so important because we're at a time in the church where there are so many of these intra-faith confrontations. And so I hope this morning that's given you a place to start, something to think about at least, something to chew over and hopefully put into practice. We'll continue with our service by singing our next song. morning from the Church of Scotland website. Thank you, gracious God. You loved the world so much that you gave Jesus to be its saviour, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. That love which surrounds us is richer than we imagine and knows no end. You have given us the freedom to make choices. We make choices all the time, from the TV channel we choose to watch or where we go for a walk, from little actions to big decisions about the future that affect not only us. We pray for all who make choices today and especially for those whose choices make a difference to many lives. In the light of your faithful love, O Lord, May all our choices be made. Lord Jesus, 
dew-walked pavements, climbed hills, sailed lakes, and breathed the air of this good earth. We bring before you the lives of those we have heard about in the news and pray for them now. Those affected by floods, the coronavirus, the shooting in Germany, and individual charities, tragedies. Lord, may your voice be heard in each situation, and may those who are in need be supported. And in the moments of quiet, to you, God of love, we bring those whom we know that you might bless them today. Some are happy and celebrating good news. Some look back with thanksgiving and forward with faith. Some are more fearful of what the future may bring. Some are struggling to come to terms with what they did not choose. Today we pray for Martin Hodson as he preaches in Coastline Community Church this morning in the East Nook of Fife. May this be a powerful time and worship to God and a blessing to the fellowship. Let us pray for Liz and Douglas and ask them to be with them in their life together. Liz as a Sunday school as a school teacher and Douglas as a nurse. We give thanks for the years of faithful service Anne and Brian have given to HBC and would ask thee to be with them in the life they share together. Amen. Dear Lord, most of us have so much and we acknowledge our privilege, but you, O oh God, are the strength of the weak, the refuge of the distressed, the comforter of the sad, and you love your creation. We come asking you to help all those in need, the homeless, the victims of violence, both domestic and global, those scarred by the wounds that life has inflicted upon them, the lonely the, and depressed. We bring them all to you in faith, trusting in your love and mercy. We recognise that you also call us to help all of those in need where you have given us the means to do so. And we can only return a fraction of what we owe you. But we ask, Lord, that you will bless our offerings and help us to use them wisely in your service and for your glory. Amen. Let's sing our closing hymn now.
as a blessing. I'm using words from Romans 11 and we'll conclude with a sung Amen. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.